Hello. Greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're so glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And today we're going to continue to explore some mountains in Scripture. Now here in Los Angeles, we are well aware of mountains. We have to our north the Santa Monica Mountains, which uh, rise... Uh, 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 feet above sea level. To our east, though, are the San Gabriel Mountains, which rise as up to, up to 10,000 feet above sea level. And so the whole area is defined by mountains. But a lot of other parts of the United States where uh, a hill of a few hundred feet would be the highest point of elevation. And you can see for miles and miles. But mountains have fascinated, inspired, and terrified humans for as long as they've been looking at them and living in their midst. When you see mountains, they tower above us, and they're an ever-constant reminder of how small we are, that the creation is much more majestic than we could have ever imagined, and thus the greatness of the God who is responsible for it. In Romans 1, 18, 20, Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, and Job 40 and verse 4, among other verses. Many times people have associated mountains with sacredness. They're the highest points of land, and thus the closest that one can get to the heavens. The Egyptians built pyramids under the view that the Pharaoh's soul would ascend from them into the heavens. In Israel, Canaanites and Israelites frequently made offerings to Yahweh or to the gods, on what are called Bamot, or high places, which would be the mountain or hill or the highest piece of elevation in a piece of land. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 2, 1 Kings 3 and 14 show examples of that. And whether you live in an area that is defined by mountains or not, uh, we know for certain that Israel has been defined by mountains. Uh, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea are part of the Great Rift Valley, which provides some of the lowest elevations on Earth. And thus, to the east, as it rises up to the Transjordan, uh, you have a high, descent, a high ascent, and that area is mountainous. To the west, Judah and Ephraim are defined by that hill country, uh, rising above uh, the Jordan River. The Anti Lebanon Mountains to the northwest define Israel's boundary there and indicate why the Phoenicians are seafarers. There's not much land for them to cultivate because they're, the Lebanon, Anti Lebanon Mountains go right to the sea. And so. Wherever you are in Israel, which is not a large country, you can most likely see mountains. And so the Israelites are continually living on or near mountains. And this landscape becomes reflected in Israel's devotional literature, where the Yahweh is praised for his strength and power over mountains and valleys and deserts of the land in Psalm 29, 42, 89, 133, and also there in Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. And therefore, since mountains feature prominently in Israel, it should, it should not surprise us that mountains feature prominently in the history of Israel. Consider Mount Moriah or Zion, where Abraham offers Isaac, where David makes sacrifice, and Solomon would build the first temple, where the second temple would later be built. Mount Sinai, Horeb, so Yahweh speaks with Moses, the law is given, and Elijah would take refuge. Mounts Hor and Nebo are where Mount Aaron and Moses respectively die. From Nebo, Moses looks upon the promised land. Mount Ebal and Gerizim are where the law is read, the curses from Ebal, and the blessings from Gerizim. Mount Tabor is where Israel defeated Sisera and the Canaanites, and where perhaps Jesus was transfigured. On Mount Carmel, Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. 
On the Mount of Olives, Yahweh would stand on a day of judgment, and Jesus would pray and ascend. And on Mount Golgotha, or Calvary, is where Jesus is crucified. And it is this last mount that it is for us to explore today from the pages of Scripture. What is Golgotha, and what is its significance in Jerusalem? What happened there, and what lessons can we gain from it? And why do we continue to return, both mentally and spiritually, to Golgotha, or Calvary? So, first of all, why all these names? Well, Golgotha is the Aramaic name, Golgotha. Calvary is the Latin equivalent to Calvarius. And it's the place of the skull pan. The Greek word used in the text is Greek kronion, which is not the full skull, but only the top of it. So it's only very, you know, that's the kind of hill, hillock, perhaps, that uh, Jesus uh, was crucified on. It's a hill outside of Jerusalem's walls, and we think it probably has the shape of that cranial top. We see that in John 19 and verse 20. It's uh, the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city of Jerusalem. A place uh, called Golgotha in Aramaic in verse 17. A place of a skull, cranion there in verse 17. Um, and Hebrews 13 and verse 12, the Hebrew author indicates uh, for us um, a, a comment about Jesus. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. No doubt there's a lot of spiritual meaning there. Being outside the camp is where you put the marginalized, the poor, the depressed, the, the ill, uh, things of that nature. But it would also make sense that a place of execution would be just outside the city walls to be outside of that holy city, the city of David, but yet proximate to it, a place where people would know. Uh, some people have associated uh, it with Goa in Jeremiah 31-39. Uh, Golgotha as a place of execution. Uh, but we don't necessarily have any other corroborating evidence for that. Uh, to ascertain its precise location is very difficult because Jerusalem was entirely destroyed in the year 70. Uh, it is the traditional location of uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's feasible. Uh, other sites have also been suggested. Now, it's, it's very uh, prominent because of Matthew 27.33, Mark 15.22, Luke 23.33, and John 19.17, uh, all of which saying, akin to what John is saying, uh, that they took Jesus uh, to the place called, the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. That's the place that he is to be crucified. Uh, so it's probably a gently rounded hillock or mound outside the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, perhaps it was an ancient quarry. It was a convenient place for crucifixion, and it was likely known as that kind of place. Now, we've got to keep in mind that we can see from, uh, for instance, Mark 15, 6 to 15, and 27, also seen in the other Gospels, that the original plan was not to crucify Jesus there. That Jesus had been arrested and had been thrown in front of Pilate, uh, and when Pilate asks if uh, who, who the Jews would like to release on the Passover, they ask for Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is the one who likely is to be crucified on that day, and his two comrades. Because the Romans liked to publicly execute and humiliate insurrectionists, it served as a good warning against su future such insurrections. And because Golgotha was right next to the gate and the wall of the city, it would provide a lot of exposure to the people and visitors of Jerusalem. As you go in and go out, you would see uh, them hanging there. And people would get the hint, you don't mess with Rome. It's interesting. 
that other than this, we don't really see a lot of noting of the place in history. Some people might want to say that that is a reason to question the legitimacy or the veracity of the account, but we do well to consider the opposite, because no one really wants to glory in a place of execution. Why would the Romans remember it? It's just a place that executed insurrectionist Jews. Why would the Jews want to remember it? It was a place of humiliation. Okay, sure, maybe perhaps they uh, did not cry any tears when Jesus was crucified there. Uh, but there are certainly others that were crucified there that uh, they uh, thought of more highly. And so it was not a place you'd want to remember there either. And so it shouldn't be surprised if, after the destruction of Jerusalem, that Golgotha, like many other places, uh, the firm knowledge of where it was, was lost. People would have known that Golgotha, Calvary, was a place of execution. Jesus was probably not even the first Messiah, quote-unquote, to be crucified there or in a similar location. And he probably also wasn't the last. Now today, we consider Jesus' crucifixion there on Calvary as an important epochal moment. But at the time, the only oddity would have been how ineffective Jesus seemed to have been at his insurrection, that uh, his behavior declaration seemed a bit erratic. He was just another Messiah to crucify and to move on with attempting to keep the peace in rest of Judea, uh, a constant difficulty for the Romans. And in fact, the scourging and humiliation and crucifixion at Roman hands was so normal that the evangelists don't need to describe it. Uh, we can see in Mark 15, 15, and 24, as other places, uh, in the other Gospels, where they don't go into any details. And after scourging him, they, they crucified him. They didn't have to explain in detail what those things were, because everybody knew what they were. Everybody had seen a scourging. Everybody had seen a crucifixion. That was normal. And in fact, if Jesus had remained dead, Golgotha or Calvary would have been meaningless and forgotten. We wouldn't be talking about it. We wouldn't care about it. Instead, Golgotha and Calvary have been immortalized in Christianity as a place where Jesus suffered and died by crucifixion, a humiliating, agonizing, and very public form of execution, because on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But what really happened there on Golgotha, on that fateful day during the Passover in the year 30 or 33? Well, most people know the basic facts of what happened there as described in Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 14 and 15, and Luke 22, 23, and John 18 and 19. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, abandoned by his disciples, tried first before the, the, the high priest in the Sanhedrin, and then before Pilate, scourged, rejected by the crowds, and humiliated by the Romans. And after all that, and he had been sentenced to die, he was led out to Golgotha and hung on the cross there and died there. So while people know about it, the implications and importance of these events are lost often on people today, because it's just not something we're familiar with. And the first element of that is the idea that it is a public display. It's a very humiliating and agonizing death. It was used very deliberately by the Romans. Not just any criminal will be crucified. After all, it's a lot easier to stab somebody. Crucifixion was reserved for those whom the Romans wanted to make public example of. Now, this is pro prominently in Judea. The insurrectionists, Alessi, robbers, uh, or terrorists, if you uh, are a certain view, or freedom fighters, depending on your perspective. So, the reason why the Messiah, the King of the Jews, is being crucified is a display of Roman power. And this explains why Pilate makes the sign in... Aramaic, Latin, and Greek in verse 20 
that it's Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many Jews read the inscription. And uh, it irritated the chief priests. They wanted to say, do not write that, but that he said he was. Pilate says, I have written, what I have written, I have written. The idea was that he, uh, making it very clear that if you claim to have usurped authority, the Romans are the rulers of the Jews, not this guy on this cross. And if you claim to be the king of the Jews, this is what's going to happen to you. And so the cross is not something that ancient people gloried in. It was an object of one's suffering, agony, public humiliation, and ultimately death. It was a continual projection of Roman power and Roman oppression. Because in the eyes of many, the people put on those crosses did not deserve to be there. Now, that's true of all cultures, but in Judaism, it takes on even greater shame. In the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, it is written, Deuteronomy chapter 21, in the last verses, 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so to leave an executed criminal hanging on a tree was accursed. If they left it overnight, it would defile the land. Now, originally the criminal, back in the original day, would have been executed and then hung on a tree as a public display of that criminal's fate. And so that would mean that the body would suffer even greater deprecations to warn community members not to participate in the same capital misconduct. But what's interesting about that is that not only did early Christians know the connection, they didn't hide it. In Acts 5 and verse 30, Acts 10 and verse 39... Peter will talk about how Jesus had been hung upon a tree. In Acts 13.29, Paul will preach the same thing. And in Galatians 3.13 and 14, he will even go so far to say that Jesus took the curse of our curse upon him. As it is written, Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. So there's a deliberate evocation of Deuteronomy chapter 21. Now this, as we can also see in John 19 and verse 31, that there was a desire to have the bodies taken down because it was a holy day, because they did not want to have the land be defiled, that uh, uh, people were associating in the first century crucifixion with this being hung on a tree, and therefore the executed criminal was being seen as accursed. And so not only is the cross an object of agony and humiliation, it's also an object of shame. And it leads to the curse upon the one who hangs upon it. We also need to note that the fact that Mount Golgotha being outside the city is also highly symbolic. Because the area outside the gates of the city will be populated by the leprous or the unclean. The remnants of sin offerings were also taken outside of the city wall in Leviticus 6.11 and 4.21. About the the leprous you can see in Leviticus 13.44-46. And that is why... In Hebrews 13.12, Jesus had to suffer outside the gate. 
as one leprous and unclean to make atonement, not that he truly was unclean, but that God had made him who knew no sin to be, a, to be sin for us, to be the sin offering for us, in Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21, so that we can be forgiven of our sin. Now the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, often understate the actions taking place around Jesus' crucifixion. But they do emphasize other aspects of Jesus' suffering on Golgotha. There's a physical suffering inherent in scourging, the crown of thorns, and the crucifixion itself. He also endures a betrayal by Judas, the abandonment by his followers, the denial of Peter. The authorities mock him, even though he has more power than they do. Those who had proclaimed a week earlier, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, the son of David, are now the ones saying, crucify him, crucify him. And the ones saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let him come down if he is so powerful. Jesus is now a pawn in the Israelite power struggle, a way for Pilate to annoy the Jewish religious authorities, the means by which Pilate and Herod reconcile. And Jesus is ultimately disposable because of any greater disruption. Pilate is willing to be annoying, but when it comes personal and threatens his own standing, he acquiesces to the will of the high priests. Jesus looks on as he sees his mother watching him die, and Mary Magdalene, who was beloved to him as well. And the religious authorities and others are mocking him and taunting him. And so on Golgotha, Jesus experiences every sort of evil, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And everything that Jesus is and stands for is held in mockery, contempt, and derision. And he endures it all, and he does not revile in in return, and dies. And so Golgotha, or Calvary, derives its meaning from what happened to Jesus there. It's a place of humiliation, a place of degradation, agony, Shame, contempt, and suffering. So what does Golgotha or Calvary mean to those in Christ and to the world? Well, if Jesus had died and was buried, and that was the end of that bit, we wouldn't have to be talking about this. It would have been another false messianic movement meeting its natural end. But on the third day, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, and everything changed. In Acts 2, verses 22 and 23, Peter affirmed that Jesus died by the determined plan and foreknowledge, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He suffered even though he was innocent, but in doing that, he proved to be the Lamb of God. He cleansed the world of sin. He provided reconciliation with God through his blood. He's made the high priest in order of Melchizedek, and thus able to save to the uttermost those who had come to him. In John 1.29, Romans 5.6-11, Ephesians 2.1-18, Hebrews 4:15, chapter 5 verses 7 through 9, chapter 7 through 9, and 1 Peter 2:18 through 24. That Jesus endured humiliation and shame and hostility, but was resur- vindicated in his resurrection, so that now his name is ex- exalted above all names, that he has conquered sin and death and all that he suffered and provides the way that we can come to a victory over sin and death as well in Romans 8 and Philippians chapter 2. And thus early Christians called the world back to see what took place on Mount Golgotha, Calvary. In Acts 2, Peter harkens back to the fact that Jesus was killed by God's predetermined plan. In chapter 3, 13-21, to the point of saying that they had killed the author of life and asked for a murderer to be granted to them. 
in Romans 5, 6 through 11, where Paul shows the superior and the incomprehensible love of God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 2, 16, that Christ crucified is what Paul preached, which was absolute folly and madness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to Jews. The events on Golgotha, in light of Jesus' resurrection, are put on display to show everyone that God worked through Christ to save mankind. In Matthew 26, 26-29, as also seen in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, and many other passages, when Jesus took bread and broke it and said, This is my body, eat. All of you, do this remembrance of me. And then the cup, saying, This is the new covenant of my blood. Drink it, all of it. In remembrance of me. In a way, on every first day of the week, we are being called by Jesus back to Golgotha, or Calvary. We're invited to jointly participate in Jesus' body and blood with fellow believers to remember the cost that, it, that God paid in Jesus to defeat sin and evil. We share in that, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17. We don't do it on Friday. We do it on Sunday. In light of the resurrection, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's that reminder that through His death and resurrection, Jesus gains the victory of the force of sin and death, and it is our hope to share in that resurrection, to have that victory. Romans 8, 17-25, and 1 Corinthians 15. Until that day comes, though, we proclaim Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the King, and crucified. And so we have to come to Mount Golgotha to proclaim Jesus' death as the means of salvation and atonement for everyone who would come to him. To remember that he, what he did was not to please himself, but to reconcile us and restore us to God. And yet even then, all believers still need to come to Golgotha in their spiritual imagination, in the light of their present calling and reality, as Jesus is on the cross. This may seem strange to us, but consider Matthew 16.24, Mark 8.34, Luke 9.23, and Luke 14.27. We must pick up our cross daily and follow after Him. In Romans 6, 1 through 11, Paul asked the question, We who have died to sin, how can we still live in it? We have died to sin when we have been baptized, and we have put on Christ. Not for nothing, in Galatians 2 and verse 20, does Paul say, It is no longer I who, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And he says there, I have been crucified with Christ. First Peter 4, Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That we are to rec- recognize that we are ceasing from sin. How do we do that? Because we, we have to do that through the suffering that comes by bearing our cross and following for Jesus. To reckon ourselves as crucified in Christ and crucified with Christ. In Acts 14.22, Romans 8.17.18, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Paul makes it very clear that Christians are not guaranteed a comfortable existence. They're not a, guaranteed the American dream. They're not guaranteed a nice church building or comfortable facilities or anything of the sort. It's, they're guaranteed the basic necessities of life 
and also persecution and tribulation, suffering in the name of Jesus. We all have to come to Golgotha, because that's what we sign up for as followers of the Christ who suffered there. We are signing up for humiliation, for derision and mockery, that we are coming in the name of and following after the one who said that the one who would be great among you would be your servant, and the greatest among you would be your slave. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 25-28. We're signing up for persecution and for suffering and tribulation, maybe from our fellow man on earth, but most assuredly from the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places which is what Jesus spends so much time warning his disciples about in Matthew 10, 24-33, and Ephesians 6, and verse 12. We're going to suffer. We're going to experience betrayal and abandonment by those we thought were friends. Our greatest opponents and despisers may be those who should really be among the people of God. And those who keep thinking that the world has it right in terms of reality and power will vaunt glory over us. We may very well find ourselves ostracized outside the camp. But Jesus calls us to take up our cross, that object of our humiliation, degradation, execution perhaps even, to follow after him to Golgotha. Unfortunately, the cross as an illustration has lost its power because it's been sanitized for mass marketing and jewelry and pictures. It has no intrinsic glory. We must realize that it only has shame. It is as if we take our rope and noose our electric chair, the gun that will execute us, and follow after Jesus to Golgotha. And on Golgotha we are confronted with how God overcomes sin, death, and evil, and restores relationships. That he suffers violence, humiliation, persecution, taunting, not returning evil, but even praying for the forgiveness of those who do such things. In Luke 23, 34, and Romans 12, and verse 21. And that is why what God accomplishes in Christ on Golgotha is radical to every generation and at all times. It's a call for renunciation of the world and of its derision and mockery, to embrace shame and humiliation, degradation, to suffer, to overcome, and to be reconciled. That we need to be willing to bear the shame in the name of Christ and for all that he stands for. That we need to go to Golgotha, take with us our lives, our relationships, to find the model for transforming them from the bloodied, derided, humiliated Christ on that cross. Now ultimately, it has to be the goal of everyone to ascend to Mount Zion and to share in the resurrection and the life with Jesus and his people. It's very interesting though that Zion is Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and the Holy Place. But the way into Jerusalem, the way into Zion goes past Calvary. In the New Testament, you cannot reach Zion except by Calvary. Jesus did not reach Zion, save by experiencing the humiliation, the derision, the suffering on Calvary. God's people cannot make it to Zion without first experiencing Calvary. And in fact, it is where at Calvary, Golgotha, where we learn the pain and the suffering and the, and the degradation that makes Zion so fair and so sweet. Golgotha is not a pleasant place. 
that rock is still haunted by the executions which took place upon it. It's not exactly the type of place that's remembered fondly, or where people would really want to go. The execution that took place there uh, during the Passover of the year 30 or 33 at the time would have just seemed to be another failed messianic movement. The crucifixion of yet another insurrectionist. Not the first, not the last. But on the third day, that crucified Messiah rose from the dead, and nothing has been the same since. Ever since then, the world has had to grapple with the events that took place there on Mount Golgotha, or Calvary. Now, if we would be in Christ, we must spend some time on Golgotha. We need to learn humiliation, degradation, shame, and suffering. We might need to embody it in our own lives, taking up our crosses and following after Jesus. And it's when we come to grips with Mount Golgotha and Calvary that we find reconciliation with God and Christ there and prove willing to suffer the shame that we can press on to Zion and to share in its glory. And thank you for your participation. Hope that you have been encouraged by our exploration of Golgotha or Calvary. If you have any questions or comments, maybe you'd like to talk more about these things or you'd like to Learn how to follow Jesus and to obtain the reconciliation that God has promised through Jesus on Calvary. Maybe you just need prayer or just need to talk. Any way I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And if you'd like to learn more about the ministry of Christ, maybe you want to check us out, find out where we meet, so on and so forth, you can please find us online at venicechurchchrist.org, or you can find us through social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.